Right, morning everybody. Wait for a few more people to join us and just as we do I'm going to get started. Um, uh, welcome to uh, Strategy Cafe. Uh, lovely to have everyone here today. In a moment I'm going to introduce Alison who's our, um, our guest leader this morning and um, a wonderful lady uh, with a really interesting long-standing uh, career as uh, a lawyer and within the city, which she's going to tell us about. And, and we're going to be talking about that, about becoming a senior woman leader in the City of London in various different contexts and her very varied and interesting career over the next half hour, and also digging into her involvement in sustainability within the, the city and the Livery Climate Action Group. Um, and then uh, uh, when we are coming up towards the top of the hour, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the next strategy cafe that we're going to be doing. Got a really exciting series of these coming up. Um, and uh, we'll stay on until 10 past, quarter past, um, and open up the webinar to questions for Alison for all of you. Um, I'd like to just uh, make a note that this is the first time that we've used this particular um, application. So we're using Zoom webinar this morning, a little bit different from usual. I'm not 100% familiar with it, so I may make the odd mistake. Uh, so forgive me if I do. I might, I'll just pause and try and correct it if I do. Um, one thing you'll notice, which is a little bit different, is that we can't see you, but we will be able to hear you at the end, which I think is probably overall a good thing in that we are going to record this. Um, and if you want me to turn the recording off for the Q&A at the end so we can have a more sort of closed question session, just, just say. Or if you'd like afterwards for a question that you've given us to be edited out uh, before we put these on the podcast and on our YouTube channel, then again, you know, please just say. Uh, and we can easily do that. So um, uh, let's uh, get going. So, um, Alison, do you want to come off uh, your mute? Morning. Good morning. Good morning, Nick. Um, and good morning, anybody that's watching and listening. <laughs> um, thank you very much for joining us today. Really, really lovely to have you. Just tell everyone a little bit about you and then let's get into you know, your interest in the city as a starting point. Well, thanks very much, Nick. You've put a little slide up of some of the, the highlights. I mean, if we start at university, it's a sort of a bit of a starting point. I read law at Durham University. It's been a very important part of my life, my connections with my college, Van Mildert, and uh, the University of Durham. And that led me directly into taking a, a training contract, which was then called Articles. I was an article clerk in, clerk in the city at the law firm, uh, which was then called Allsop Stevens, Bateson's & Co., fairly sort of medium-sized firm. Um, but that then merged over the next uh, 20 years or so to become one of the world's largest law firms now, DLA Piper. Um, during my career, I, I, I specialised in real estate, commercial property work, and at the age of uh, 30 became uh, one of the first female partners in the city and the first female partner in my firm. Um, other highlights, as well as a sort of a commercial property law career at DLA Piper, I was very involved in founding the first women's network, and that's been a very flourishing part of our diversity network schemes. And I also was the training partner for our real estate group across Europe, which meant 300 real estate lawyers, um, which was really very exciting and, in, and, and engaging work. But um, the other parallel side, I suppose, to my career is getting involved in the City of London Corporation. And so in 1991, 
I stood for election on the Court of Common Council, which is the governing body of the city. I don't know quite how familiar everybody is. There's probably one or two over familiar and very many people not very familiar, but we can go into anything that's not very clear. But an elected member of the Court of Common Council, independent, uh, not party political, and that was a 10 year stint. And then I um, was again re-elected, but this time to be an alderman, which is a slightly different role, but again elected. And then last year, I became um, a sheriff of the city of London. There are two sheriffs and that job started in September and it's just held for one year. So that's really where I am now. That's hence the alderman and sheriff sort of title to me. Are you, are you at the Old Bailey right now? Are you in Mansion House or are you, are you somewhere else? <laughs> no, I'm actually at DLA Piper, uh, oh. to be honest. I, uh, the Old Bailey, uh, where traditionally sheriffs have a, a, an apartment where they can live. This year it's being refurbished. So, you know, as a property lawyer, I should think that's great. We get our properties sorted out. So I'm not <laughs> living there at the moment. I do have a, a judge's room. Uh, as an office but the uh for this first of all at this time in the morning actually most of the prisoners are arriving and there can be quite a bit of background noise um of the prisoners arriving in the cells below me and all the vans coming in and out and the it isn't quite as good as it as it is here at dla piper yeah it makes sense so so um i mean it's it's it's, it's a very strange uh and an old kind of tradition that the sheriff lives in the old bailey and is kind of in charge of the building there but it's good that it's being refurbished i understand <laughs> is that is that fair yes <laughs> <laughs> more, com more comfortable living quarters for you well i think it was quite mouse and moth ridden which wasn't great and not, not <laughs> no heating in that bit of the, the, the building so that bit definitely needed refurbishing uh, this is this is a lovely photo uh, it looks like it's the guild hall to me yes yeah and maybe on the roman forum um is that right the amphitheater the, the amphitheater actually the roman forum is over um towards Edinburgh market this is the amphitheater and uh, this was the election of the sheriff so in the middle we've got the then lord mayor william russell the then two existing sheriffs michael manelli and chris hayward and then at the outside in the in the duller robes the violet colored robes is myself and nick lyons my co-sheriff yeah yeah, wonderful. So uh, when we were chatting about coming on the podcast today, um, we had um, a really interesting alignment. My 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 wife um, used to come up um, with her father to uh, the Lord Mayor's show uh, as a kid, and he was a he was a NatWest banker in the city at the time. So she, you know, really remembers fondly, um, you know, being brought up as a child up to up to that. And he, um, you know, what there's a famous. Um, um, you know, there's there's still fragments or remnants of a of a bomb uh, on the Old Bailey. Is it? Mm. He, walked, he walked past the Old Bailey on the day of the bomb. You know, like five mm. minutes past it. So there's sort of interesting sort of shared past. But I was just super mm. fascinated that you know this was a big thing for you with your dad. Tell mm. us a little bit about how how as a child, you know, the city was a thing for you. Yes, it, it's strange. My father was a Methodist minister, which sort of meant traditionally you move around posts quite regularly, although he seemed to stay everywhere for about seven years, so it wasn't that disjointed. But we came to Dartford in Kent when I was 11 and started at Dartford Grammar School, so it was a good point in my education. And my father just one Saturday said, oh, do you fancy going up to the Lord Mayor's show? I mean, I don't know that I'd even actually heard of it then. I would probably have been about 12 or 13. And it was slightly out of character for him to even want to bother to go to London, but it was only a 30 minute train ride from Dartford. And in fact, you know, Dartford, for me, Dartford was always tantalizingly on the edge of the city. The city was the draw, the big place to go to. Mm. So we went up literally on spec one Saturday morning. It was absolutely crowded. I remember 
um, we, we stood at uh, Mansion House Station and there were raised flower beds there. And certainly I'm such a short, short person. I had to be standing on the flower bed in order to see anything over the crowds. And the buzz excitement, um, the floats were just, you know, incredible. The marching bands, the, the, the military, everything to me sort of talked of possibility and sort of slightly quirkiness but but it wasn't an alien world I didn't feel um sort of you know rejected by it. I felt I could be part of it um I, I don't think after that I then said that's what I'm going to do in life because it was you know some whatever 40 years later that I actually uh well 30 years later rather I actually got involved but I think it was always in the back of my mind that this is a place that's that's um exciting um the city of london is is a place of possibilities i love that uh, city of london is a place of possibilities um so those of you who have joined us um you know you'll be able to see there's a chat area and a q a area and one of the reasons we've gone for this application is that we can use that so if you want to put questions in or you want to just chat during the webinar please do and uh, we, we should be able to see it and i'll try and pick up questions as as we go um, one of the things we talk about um, in our work in transformation and change, um, again, this is uh, a connection with my wife, who's a business partner and works with us in, in, in Alembic, um, is this idea that the patterns that we form in life um, somehow fate us. So um, although I pick up your kind of idea that um, maybe you didn't decide at that point to come back into the city of London, it's interesting that you had that sense of the vibrancy and its possibilities. You know, and then, you know, we're going to come on to it now, you know, you're building careers. I wonder, I just wonder, you know, whether unconsciously, you know, you were always, you were always coming back. Um, so we got this, which I, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to this in a second. This is a, a, a photo I know of, um, you know, a particular big property deal that you were involved in, which may be great context of talking about, you know, your, 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 the legal side of things. And, and we've got some stuff up here about, about becoming a partner and about DLA Piper. And you know, there's a little bit there about them, which is you know, a good opportunity just to promote DLA Piper here for a second. Um, everyone can see the slide. I, I'm gonna drop the slide so people can see us a little bit better, but maybe we can just chat about this um, part of your life. So how, tell us about, you know, how did you come back into the city? And you know, tell us about a little bit about you know, um, being a woman leader in a busy carton for us corporate law firm, you know, how did that all happen? Yes, well, I mean, I, um, I said I didn't think about becoming, if you like, a member of the corporation when I saw the show, but I certainly always wanted to come back to work in the city because I felt I wanted to be a lawyer from sort of around that time in my, my, uh, my school career, wanted to read law at university, so that all happened, and I luckily got a, a you know, place as an article clerk, as I said. Um, you know, when you come into the firm, I, I wasn't the only woman trainee, so that was quite good, but it was clear all the partners were men. But I felt that if I worked hard and I just thought, um, you know, I suppose I was focused, I wanted to make a career, I had to, you know, make my own way in terms of finding, um, you know, something that was going to earn me money to, to, to live and uh, find somewhere to, to progress. You know, I just felt, you know, it would come to me if I worked hard and did well and saw how things worked within the firm. And, you know, it was, I wasn't the youngest partner ever made up. So, you know, clearly it wasn't sort of meteoric, but I was the first female partner. Mm. And to me, in a sense, it didn't really feel that strange because I just felt it was me doing it. But I mean, it clearly was, we were, there weren't many women partners in the law firms and the city law firms at the time. Um, so I think this was 1985. 
you know, I it, it made a difference really in terms of things. And, and I didn't want to be the first, frankly. I wanted it to, to, to open up for the future from there. And were, were you, you were the first in your firm? Were you, were the, you weren't... Absolutely, the first in my firm, yeah, which was then a Liverpool, London firm. Right. Um, and there were about 40 partners, I reckon. So, I mean, it was a little bit daunting. It was like, you know, walking into a lion's den, if you like, going to partners meetings a little bit. But, you know, they were people I knew. So I didn't, I didn't see it. They saw me as the only woman there. And I just saw me as me with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And did you perceive glass ceiling? Was glass ceiling in your mind? Yes, it, it was. It wasn't, una I wasn't unaware of that. But I didn't feel, you know, that I could then sit back and do nothing. I suppose I always just continued and wanted to do better and better and I suppose an element which maybe seemed to be a female trait of trying to prove yourself more than other people mm. so I didn't feel that I could say it's done and I just didn't need to bother anymore I was always feeling that I it was not precarious because obviously the partnership it's a commercial contract but you just felt that you were always needing to 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 make yourself known and make yourself your presence there mm. And I'm just curious about the politics, um, not asking you to, to you know, uh, share anything you don't want to share, but just, I mean, most most partnerships have got their, their heavy dose of politics amongst the senior partners. Mm. How, mm. Did you, how did you find that? And what were the, you know, what were the best ways that you learned to navigate, uh, to navigate politics? Well, I was very lucky that I had a very good mentor, effectively. The person who'd actually interviewed me for the job, gave me the job as an article clerk, continued to promote me obviously he was a man because he was a partner already mm. and I think that was helpful to build allies along the way I mean not everybody was going to like you and you weren't going to like everybody but I think you needed to understand how people um, you know perhaps perceived you how how you could work together whether there was some shared goals I mean obviously the profitability of the partnership was important but it was more in terms of maybe clients or or jobs or roles or 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 engagement in in many ways I think building those people together I didn't get involved in the heavy politics I didn't see my interest in actually staying in a sort of a managerial role which was perhaps the next role up is once you've become a partner and you've you become a senior partner in your area of work it's to go into management and go onto the board and that didn't appeal to me I'm afraid that did look far too political and, yeah. and I felt that I wanted um, to stay in the legal system as a lawyer but then, of course, I found, you know, a total distraction to a certain extent by going into getting involved in the City of London Corporation. Yeah. Um, so that 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 suited me in a, in a, in a better way. And, and yeah. that is obviously clearly not devoid of politics either. So yeah. then again, it's it's a sort of it's um, yeah, it's claiming allies along the way, you hope. Yeah, I mean, in a way, um, City of London is more electoral, you know, with more real politics, isn't it? I think uh, DLA is probably, you know, narrow politics, isn't it? It's the, it, the, the electorate is the partners of the partners, isn't it? Whereas yeah. you know, in the City of London, it's real. Yeah, I mean, it's not party politics on the whole. It no. certainly wasn't at that stage. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're dealing with, you know, the people that elect you are real people with real with real problems. And, and you know, you do have a position of power mm. um, because, you know, you seem to be the people that are deciding whether, you know, to to do this with the money that's collected through the council taxes and whether to do something else. And you have both the overlay of the residential voters, but also the business constituents. And they're also, you know, many of them interested in what is the Lord Mayor doing? What's the corporation doing about issues? We had the whole Brexit issue. You know, we have you know response to COVID now. 
Um, we have, you know, the future of the city, how we can regain its competitiveness. You know, we are challenged on those issues by many, many of the people who we come into contact with as voters or in just in the business community generally. Let's let's come back to that in a second. I want to come back to so I think your choice of pathway um, is to stay, therefore, in what I call expert leadership. So, you know, at the forefront of your field in commercial property law. And I always think, you know, there's there's um, two different aspects, two really striking aspects of being a lawyer. So one is a deal maker, which is sparring with the other side and negotiating for your client, trying to get the best for them. The other side that we see often, you know, over the last decade or two, it's really sort of risen is more the mediator, mm. um, you know, trying to bring parties together and uh, acting more, you know, the mediator or the arbitrator. Now you're, I think, uh, the, 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 the battler, aren't you? Is that right? <laughs> I got that right. <laughs> Well, I mean, in any transaction, it sort of goes through very, very many stages, doesn't it? I mean, you start wanting to do a deal together. And then at some stage during the transaction, your aims slightly diverse, uh, you know, diverge because either the money isn't right or some other conditions don't work or some other you know, spanner comes in the work or a third party gets involved in some way. And so then you start to mediate to make sure you've got the deal still on on course, really. And, and finally, you sign up at which stage you hope you're not at daggers drawn anymore, but, but you're back to an engaging, you know, good shake of hands that you, you feel you've done the right thing. I mean, I enjoy all that. Um, I mean, I, you know, overnight deals, deal doing and conversations can be a bit grueling and, and, you know, I didn't do them every week, but on the other hand, you know, I, I quite enjoyed that gamesmanship of working out what everybody wants from the deal because if if people start off thinking you've got a heads of terms that are agreed and then suddenly it all diverges you need to work out why what's gone wrong what's happened what why is the you know what were they you know um, you know not in fact honest in the first place or has something changed something changed on your part I mean you know my clients weren't always as straight as you know the deal is done that they will have variations that come through and you have to guide that path as their lawyer because you have your own um, sort of standards and professional requirements that you want to stay by and stand by um, and, and that's part of the sort of you know the standing you have in the profession generally if you're known to be a if you like a lawyer that just wavers and doesn't actually uh, stick to the stick to a, at least a, a transparent honesty about things so you know that can also weigh against you in a future deal. I think that's super interesting. And so you bring all of that experience of, uh, I guess, the resourcefulness of the professionalism, which includes the expertise and experience and detail of being a lawyer and going through, you kind of, you know, I've done many of these and desperately want a great lawyer on your side to sort of go through all of the detail and make sure nothing is missed once you get to sort of, mm. you know, trying to complete that transaction. Um, but the thing I also found super interesting about you and you know, it's fundamental to success at the end you know, there's always kind of like these pinch points towards the end of all of this um, process um, is the human dynamic. Um, so, you know, an understanding, you know, I always think you know, in our clients and situations, quite often people start off by just being defensive and thinking about themselves. And, you know, in the first mm. opening up of the deal is when somebody on one side starts to think about the need of the other side. Mm. You know, and then mm. particularly, what's the hidden need? You know that we um, you know, sometimes this is called the black swan of the deal. So, what's the what's the unexpected hidden need that you know provides you some opportunity, some leverage? So, tell us a little bit about human dynamic, and I think you love that. 
Yes, I do, because I think one of the reasons I liked and wanted to go into the real estate world and the commercial property world is that I like the people in it. I mean, they weren't all nice people. And, you know, you often feel that commercial developers and people like that can be very sharp in their in their behavior. But actually, I found them you know, engaging and interesting, wanting to make a deal. But actually, um, you know, there was a great human side to them as well. And, and you know, you sort of either get on with them or you don't get on with them and I did and I felt uh, it, it it you know it helped me to work with people that I sort of understood and got on with them to, I could represent them as a client um, in the legal profession in the legal work and then again when you met other people's clients you know you'd either get on or not but actually what you needed to see and to understand is what their drivers were um, and how these things impacted on the the, the, the transaction you were trying to to nail for that for that day. And was there was there any really important technique or lesson for you know gaining that um, leverage that secret information that understanding of the other side's needs? Um, I suppose a little bit trying to be reflective on things. I mean, because it, because the deals can move so quickly, and you can be very, you know totally focused on them, and then other things will happen, and you'll sort of forget what you were doing with the first deal because something else just completely threw you off the rails during the, the day or something I think it's just being reflective on what's going on taking stock you know calling the team in if you like and saying look where are we what's gone on what's mm-hmm. where are things happening mm-hmm. and just trying to um you know just assess where we are and just really then think what are the red lines? what are our you know red lines what are the clients you know no-go areas what 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 what's the bare minimum and what can we just ditch as, as giving in or giving in but you know what can we concede to the other side so as to make sure that we get exactly what we want without losing you know losing anything that is not really relevant to us so I think just reflecting and recalculating because you can often get so hooked in that you just don't actually reassess what the deal is all about you just think you've got to win it at all costs yeah. and I think it's really important to just say where are we going what are we going to do do we you know do we want to do the deal you know let's start all over again from almost basics and then and then work through how that's going to to be to be able to be affected and effective in the in the transaction what was it about this one um the uh, wrwa yes yes think? so the wrwa is the western riverside waste authority right so it's an actually amalgam of um sort of western borough when i say western boroughs i mean wandsworth um hammersmith and fulham oh gosh it, it's it's about 10 or 15 years ago i did this deal but it's a sort of iconic deal because this site that we've got here is their site on the river um, down in Wandsworth at Smuggler's Wharf. Uh, and um, it's now very much surrounded by all the Thames Tideway works. But, you know, this is where the waste comes down the river in barges, you know, it gets dumped into this big sort of um, a warehouse there, gets sorted out or stuff comes from the road and goes on the barges and goes off down the river. So it was these local authorities together trying to outsource their waste disposal. And um, what I liked about it is, first of all, that as a lawyer, you get so involved with the client's business. You know, I wouldn't have known anything about waste disposal, but, you know, I now understand, if you like, the whole process of what works. So you have to understand their business in order to understand what it is that's driving the, the, the transaction here. Yeah. And, uh, and that was very interesting. And now because of my sustainability interests, you know, that understanding of waste and waste disposal, then there was obviously a lot of landfill. Now there's a lot of 
recycling uh, and also energy from waste. They have an energy from waste um, facility, Corey, down at Belvedere, which I was also involved in as part of this deal. And I think what was interesting is, is all these local authorities, so they had to agree, um, and then they had to agree with you know, the provider um, of the, the waste services. So it was sort of quite innovative in terms of the local authorities outsourcing and then finding, um, finding the right transaction with this external private company. And then also all these sites where, you know, people were living next door. They didn't want waste disposal right there. And there was the whole thing about, you know, trucks coming in and out and residents. So there was a, you know, at every level, there was a sort of a, a little issue. And then finally, you've, you have to have blessing from the minister for the whole deal. So then you had to wait for the ministers to sort of agree. So, you know, even when we got the deal done, there was a final straw, which was totally outside of our control to agree it. So interesting. So it's uh, it's totemic in terms of what it does for London. It's complex because it's got uh, council and private interests and it's political in the end. It's significant enough mm. to need ministerial sign off. It's mm. a fascinating time in the kind of the evolution of how local councils work in partnership uh, with the local business community much more. So super interesting transaction I, I, I want to take us on to um, climate and uh, yeah. climate. now we have talked a little bit about the city so given the time I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, move past to, to, to this group um, and just um, just a marker for the session we're interviewing Alison Gauman uh, this morning um, who's an alderman and Sheriff of London, heavily involved in um, the City of London Corporation and had a career which we've just been discussing really interestingly uh, as a you know, senior equity partner at DLA Piper in uh, commercial property, um, but has had a huge interest in sustainability. Um, and um, we met through my livery company just coming into connection with Alison through the Livery Climate Action Group. Now I'm gonna kind of start this by saying whether we like it or not each one of us is currently in climate change transition and we may not be actively in climate change transition but we are because society is in it and many 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 businesses and people are taking steps and taking action out there now so there's a kind of a wave of stuff happening ac actions as opposed to worries the worries are all there but the actions are starting um and that i find fascinating and I think you've been leading on that for a long time so tell us a little bit about your interest in this and let's talk about what's happening in livery climate action yeah thanks I mean I've had an interest for a long time obviously with the corporation's own footprint they own 6,000 buildings across their whole of their portfolio from the guild hall to a sort of you know a shepherd's hut on Epping Forest um, you know, there's a lot about um, climate issues that affect a, a big organisation like the corporation. So I drove through their issues around measuring energy and trying to get them involved in sustainability. Um, it sort of slightly stumbled. I mean, I got a subcommittee set up and then they decided, oh, we're doing it anyway. So it sort of got abandoned in the mid 2010s, about 2015. And then it revived again because suddenly actually climate was a big issue. And last year, the corporation set its own climate action strategy and part of that was to make sure that everybody in the square mile is also um, promoting that they should also be net zero by 2040. And so I've been doing quite a lot of engagement with all the various constituencies, one of whom is the livery companies, mm. 110 organizations, some of whom have large property portfolios, some of whom have no property, 
everybody's got investments of one kind or another. So there's all areas where we can actually engage with the, with the transition and actually challenge ourselves as to what we can do to reach net zero by a date to be determined, but at least 2040 as far as the city corporation are concerned. Amazing. Um, we were chatting about this prior to COP26 and mm. um, it's very interesting. I think I came to one of your sessions um, where you just heard about Mark Carney's initiative to, and we heard about all of that. So to just tell everyone a little bit about that, about the, um, the transition finance. and. Uh, so the City Corporation set up something called the Green Finance Institute, and mm. it has been going now for three years. And it is absolutely amazing how with the corporations backing initially and with Treasury and Bayes, the government, but now very much um, supported by so many endowments and businesses to actually be the hub, the go to place for green finance building you know the, the whole community and Mark Carney is very involved in this he was the COP ambassador the, the UN representative and the UK representative and he inevitably from his own background has seen how private finance is the key to the transition funding the transition and the Green Finance Institute have been working you know, alongside Mark Carney and the corporation and all of the you know trillions of dollars that have been pledged to actually um, fund the transition and the Institute has been looking at various areas where it can particularly give um, guidance. So the two or three initiatives, one is the Coalition for Energy Efficient Buildings, looking at what the barriers are to getting houses greened, um, you know, working with the businesses, the finance organisations. We've also been doing a lot of work on decarbonising transport and setting up the GFI Hive, which is actually a hub looking at how you can fund nature-based solutions. I mean, I'm a non-exec director of GFI. Um, there's a lot on their website if you want to have a look. And it's basically um, you know, grown in strength and stature as to what it can say and do about this whole transition through private finance. Um, one of the big topics, I think, at the moment is um, uh, ESG um, and you know, um, actually um, voting, voting with your money. So the big funds starting to vote for uh, companies that are very actively engaged in, in transition. Yeah. Uh, and and withdrawing funds from companies that are not. And I do hear like uh, different voices on this. Um, say some economists saying ESG is really just a sales tool for funds to try and attract people into a different subsector of the funds, you know, rather than getting what they maybe should get. Um, this is not a sales pitch and I'm not a financial advisor, but perhaps, you know, a low cost index tracker mm. that, um, and you know the one of the voices is actually you should you should invest in companies and then go to their meetings and then be mm. difficult and then use mm. your, use your investment vote to to you know, um, ask for them to change things um, do you do you do you and the city have a view on ESG and and how you feel about it well we the city corporation does have significant funds not least in a charitable fund the bridge house estates and we're crafting our investment strategy at the moment I mean I don't think that the city corporation would be probably known as an activist investor but mm. certainly we we are crafting a, you know a very very credible plan as to how we're going to get to net zero with our um, investments obviously ESG is about more than just net zero it's about social and governance and the city corporation also has you know huge uh, commitment and policies to the social and governance areas as well I mean, I don't think disinvesting is 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 the best way to do it. But I think, as you said, you know, engaging, working together, whether it's both collaboratively or in a more sort of strategic and aggressive way 
um, because that's how some people like to do it. I think that is the way we, you know, we don't need to have ESG as something special. It should be, in fact, the prism to all our investments all the time in the way we're working. We need to look at how we have an impact on all of these things that are, are so critical to the future of our human race on this planet. And um, just tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're actually seeing. So, you know, the livery uh, is very interesting, ancient and modern, um, active um, and more fellowship orientated in terms of their mm. trades. Um, there are very current companies, you know, you, there yep. are still the most ancient of companies where the trades don't really exist in the same way anymore. Um, yeah. but, but they do bring together business people. Um, active and retired and thousands and thousands of businesses you know big mm. medium-sized and tiny mm. um so what, are, what are you seeing through? yeah well i'm i'm most excited about that which is that the impact the livery can have on the trades professions and crafts that they're involved with yeah. so in october i took part um in a seminar a whole day seminar that the air pilots and the scientific instrument makers two different livery companies oh, wow. put yeah. on about green green aviation you know, and their power was to bring several aircraft companies to the table, uh, bring the Minister of Transport on aviation there. So we had a really interactive engagement on the whole issue around green aviation. And, um, you know, that's still a project that's ongoing. I had a meeting about it last week. So that's the livery company bringing together so many different diverse people. And there are other groups, the fuelers are very much working in the uh, renewable energy and hydrogen space, space. again, Lots of seminars going on about these topics, which I think, you know, livery companies would not have been doing three or four years ago, whether it's the, the impact of Zoom meetings during COVID that's actually caused people to have more serious conversations. I don't know. Um, but but you're absolutely right. The, the, the livery companies are, you know, are sort of a portal through to so many businesses and organisations. We've got the pan livery food group of all the foodie livery companies looking at what sustainable food, uh, sustainable eating, healthy eating is looking like and producing some guidance on that as well. Amazing. Mm. Thank you very much uh, for talking to us. Today, we've been interviewing Alison Gowman, Alderman and Sheriff of London and a leading light in the Livery Climate Action Group about her career as a senior uh, female partner uh, in commercial property law uh, in the city and her career uh, in the City of London Corporation and uh, about how delivery companies are taking steps to help thousands of businesses transition for climate change. It's been a super interesting session and I hope you have enjoyed it. Um, take a look at our uh, free resilience course. Uh, it's available on our Learn World site. Uh, it's free of charge and we've made it available to everybody uh, to help everyone fill up their energy battery. Um, please find it and share it if uh, you think this would be interesting for you or for anyone in, in your team or your colleagues or your family. Uh, it's a great little program. So thank you very much for listening today. I hope you really enjoyed the Strategy Cafe with Alison and check in next time for our next session which will be on transformation and is uh, going to be advertised on the Alembic website. The address is just here.